chapter 2. Mark 2, that is found on page 1003. Mark chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But, that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Well, we'll be coming back to this passage soon in the service. Before we do, turn back in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, we're thinking this morning... About verses 1 to 12. I'm sure that many of you over the last couple of weeks, if you've put on your TV at all, have seen some of the queues of people at Wimbledon waiting for the tennis. People who are happy to give up their time happy to stand in a line on the off chance that they might just get a ticket to see their new heroes. And you can maybe sense in the TV 
the excitement as they gather and as they wait, desperate, to see these people that they've come to see. I think that's not unlike what happens in Mark 2 verses 1 to 12. Here we have one of the biggest celebrities in the whole country. People have heard the stories. In fact, they're stories that seem so far-fetched that they think they couldn't possibly be true. And so, when they discover that Jesus is in this town, they gather together. They track him down. They find the house where he's teaching. And then they squeeze inside. Everyone wants to see, is this man who he says he is? And sadly, many people go home disappointed. It's just like being at Wimbledon. There's such a wall of people that many of them can't even get close. They go home having failed to see or to hear this famous preacher. Thankfully, Mark writes for us exactly what happened. Mark gives us a front row seat as he describes exactly what was going on in that house. It was cramped. It was packed full of people. There were city folk from Jerusalem. There were country folk from Galilee. There were fishermen. There were teachers. There were people from all sorts of backgrounds. And all of them were there for one reason. They'd heard the stories about Jesus. They'd heard about the miracles. They'd been told about the really controversial things that he's been saying. And so they squeeze into the house. They look to see what's the fuss all about. And what they see in these 12 verses is something that they will never forget. Because Jesus performs what is possibly the greatest and the most significant of any of his miracles. So we're going to come and look at this miracle this morning. Firstly, we have the biggest problem in the world. The biggest problem in the world. This house is crammed with people. And yet, there's a silence. Everyone in that house is hanging on every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth. And then, suddenly, the sermon stops. There's dirt dropping from the ceiling. There's a strange scraping noise coming from the roof. And Mark explains it for us. 
because there's a group of men trying to get in. This house is so full that even the very door of the house is crowded with people. And so these four men climb up the outside of the house, up the stairs, and they go on to the roof. This roof, just like any other one in Israel, is completely flat. And as they stand there, in between the rafters of the roof, is very tightly packed dirt and branches. And so these men very easily are able to dig through the roof. I want you to imagine the confusion that there is down below. One minute you're listening to this exciting sermon. The next minute you see sunlight appearing from up above. You see this hole and gradually it gets wider and wider and then eventually there's four faces staring down into the house and then things get even more bizarre there's a paralyzed man he's lying on a bed and he gets lowered down into the room wonder if you were there what would you have been thinking as you saw this I would imagine you would be quite excited you've heard so much about all of these miracles that Jesus has been doing and now you're about to see one in the flesh can you imagine the anticipation in the room Jesus has healed the blind he has even cured leprosy and now he's about to make this paralysed man get up and walk so as the people watch and wait Jesus does something very surprising he does something very very strange verse 5 he says to him son your sins are forgiven don't you read that and think Jesus has missed the point this man isn't able to walk he isn't able to do things for himself. What he needs is for Jesus to fix his legs. And instead, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder, was this man a wee bit disappointed when he heard this? I wonder, did he wake up thinking to himself, this is the day when I'm going to be able to walk. I wonder, did his heart sink as Jesus looked at him and then completely ignored 
his problem. Jesus, in this passage, sees more than what is obvious. Jesus sees something that is far more serious and far, far more dangerous. Suppose you were to go to the doctor because you've been having a pain in your arm. So the doctor, he sits you down, he asks you a few questions, how long you've had the pain, that sort of thing. Takes your arm, twists it, he bends it a wee bit, and then he gets out a stethoscope. Puts it to your chest, and he begins to listen to your heart. Would you be thinking at that point... This is ridiculous. The doctor doesn't care about my arm. Well, no, you would realise there's something far more serious than what I thought. And Jesus, in this passage, is doing the same thing that a good doctor always does. Jesus sees the more dangerous and more serious problem. Jesus knows very well this man isn't able to walk. But he also knows there's something far worse. This man is a sinner. This man has broken God's law. By the way, that's, that's not to imply that the two things are somehow linked. The passage certainly doesn't tell us that this man is sick because of some sin that he has committed. But Jesus knows if this man's guilt goes untreated, he is going to lose far, far more than just the ability to walk. Jesus knows this man if his sin isn't dealt with, is going to have to stand in front of a holy God and he's going to have to answer for his sins. Jesus sees the real problem. The question is, do you? It may be that you are facing really big problems. It may be that life is very uncertain. And yet, is it possible that you are ignoring the biggest problem of all? You know, we're often told if you find a lump, then you are to go straight to the doctor. You're not to assume that it's probably a false alarm. You're not to decide that this is something that can wait. You're to go, you're to get it seen to. And we're told if you don't do this, then you are being incredibly foolish. Is it possible that some of you 
are being even more foolish than that? Could it be that you are allowing sin to fester? Could it be that you are putting your very eternal life at risk? Perhaps, for some of you, this passage is a wake-up call. Don't ignore the biggest problem of all. Secondly, we have the greatest miracle in the world. The greatest miracle in the world. And Jesus, after he sees this man's need, takes immediate action. Verse 5, he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Then, verse 6 and verse 7, we see that some of the crowd are very, very unhappy. Verse 6. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These men, the scribes, the teachers, were experts in God's law. These men spent all day, every day, studying the Bible. And these men, as good students of scripture, knew that only God can take away sin. Only God has the right to tell someone that their sins have been forgiven. Can you see their logic here? If Jesus has just declared this man's sins to be forgiven, well what then is Jesus saying about himself? He's saying, I'm God. And so, understandably in some ways, these teachers get angry. They don't seem to say anything, but their hearts are full of hatred. Why does this fellow speak like this? You can maybe hear the contempt in their words. In their mind, Jesus is just a piece of dirt. In fact, he's even worse than dirt. He's a blasphemer. He's the very worst sort of person that you could possibly imagine. I think it's kind of fun to picture their shock as we reach verse 8. They haven't been brave enough to say it, but Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows exactly what is running through their mind. It's maybe a slightly frightening thought that the person at the front could know exactly what you're thinking. Jesus does. And so he decides he's going to take these men on. And interestingly, what he does is basically to give these men a riddle. It's in verse 8. 
like verse 9. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Which one is easier? The end of the service. If we wanted to, we could head down to the castle. We could find some tourists. And we could say to them, I want you to know that I have forgiven all of your sins. Chances are they're going to back away. Certainly it's unlikely that they're going to believe the things that we say. The thing is, they could argue all they want. They can never prove that we're wrong. It is impossible to see whether or not someone's sins have been forgiven. In fact, if someone was especially persuasive, they could maybe convince people that they have the power to forgive sins. It's easy to tell someone that their sins are forgiven. Suppose instead of going to the castle, we went to the hospital and we found someone who's stuck in bed. And we said to them, I am about to make you well. Well, there is no way that we would convince anyone. Because no matter how persuasive we might be, that person is not going to get up. They will still be sick. There will be proof that we have got it wrong. And so the answer to this riddle in verse 9 is that it is easy to tell someone their sins are forgiven. It is much more difficult to tell someone to get up and to walk. And so at this point in the passage Jesus has said the easier of the two sayings. He has told this man that he's forgiven and there is no way of knowing whether or not that is true. And so at this point Jesus puts his reputation on the line. Jesus says the more difficult of the two sayings. Verse 11 I tell you get up Take your mat and go home. Can you imagine the anticipation in the room at last? Here is the moment they've been waiting for. And yet, somehow I doubt that they understood just how significant and how crucial this moment was. Think about it. If this man on this bed doesn't get up, then Jesus' ministry is ruined. 
No one can ever believe a single thing that this man says. And and we're told in verse 10 the reason why Jesus does this. So that we may know that he has authority to forgive sins. What he's doing here is a test. Everybody in that room is about to see whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. In verse 12, what happens? He got up, took his mat and walked out in view of them all. It's a wonderful miracle. Jesus has transformed this man's life. And yet, it's even more important. Because Jesus has just proved beyond doubt that he has the authority to forgive (laughs) sins. And so we need to understand, (coughs) we have two miracles in this passage. One miracle is to make this man walk. The other miracle is to take away this man's sin. One miracle is really, really easy. The other miracle is extremely hard. One miracle. All Jesus needs to do is speak. And this man is able to get up and walk. But the other miracle, even Jesus himself can't just speak and make someone's sin disappear. It takes more than just words. By doing this, Jesus has to take this man's place. Jesus doesn't become a sinner, but he is infected with this man's guilt. Jesus knows that in order to perform this miracle, in order to forgive this man, he himself has to take that terminal septic guilt and he himself has to bear God's awful wrath. Jesus, when he does this, commits himself to being punished in this man's place. And in just the same way, those of us who have been forgiven for our sins, Jesus has taken our festering, terrible sin and he has carried it so that we can be healed. And yet... Can't we so easily allow ourselves to grow cold? 
We don't marvel that Jesus would go that far in order to cure us from our sin. We don't get excited when we think about the cost on the cross of us being forgiven. As we think about this, our hearts should be bubbling with joy, shouldn't they? And yet so often, we're simply not that moved. We've been healed of our sin and our guilt if we're Christians. And even greater, Jesus has paid this terrible price as he went to the cross. That's why this is the greatest miracle in the world. Because it's more than just words. There's an awful cost. So we've seen the biggest problem in the world, the greatest miracle in the world, and then thirdly and finally, we have the biggest decision in the world. The biggest decision in the world. This passage confronts us with a simple question. Who will you trust to deal with this problem, with sin? And in this passage, we have two examples of how to respond to Jesus. The first example is the paralysed man and his four friends. Verse 5, they're described for us as men of faith. They believe that Jesus has the power to heal. They trust that if somehow they can just get to Jesus, then he will put everything right. question is, do you have the same faith as these men? These men who knew that everything was hopeless. These men who realised that their friend could do absolutely nothing to help himself. This man, who to most people was just a waste of space. Yet they were men of faith. And notice, as they come to Jesus in faith, he doesn't give them a list of boxes that they need to tick. And he doesn't give them a bunch of hoops that they have to jump through. He simply says to him, your sins are forgiven. And later, take up your mat and walk. And isn't that the experience of all of us who come to Jesus in faith? We won't necessarily get physical healing like the man in this passage, but we do get complete and a radical cure from the problem of guilt. These men are a wonderful example. They show us whenever we have a need, 
We're to go straight to the only one who can help us. That's Jesus. So these men are the first example. They show us what it means to have faith. The second example is the scribes. These men who were passionate about their Bibles. These men who were almost flawless in their theology. These men who sometimes I think would fit in very well in some of the circles that we move in. And yet, tragically, men who were wrong when it came to the biggest question of all. They were men who were amazed by Jesus' teaching and by his miracles. And yet we read on in the Gospels and we see most of these men never came to faith. These men show us how easy it is to love the Bible and to love church and yet to lose sight of the one whom it's all about. We could look at these men and we could think to ourselves, I would never be like that. And yet, it's easy to know your Bible, to be at church every week, even to preach at the front or to bring others out to the services and yet never have faith. And in fact, these men were even more sick and even more guilty than the paralysed man. Because these men had heard truth many more times. And yet, these men didn't respond in faith. Could it be that some of us, by coming to church every week and yet by not trusting, are simply becoming more and more sick? Could it be that every time you leave this building, you are more guilty than you were whenever you came in? got the scribes and we've got these men of faith two different examples the scribes they simply didn't grasp how serious the problem was they thought <coughs> if you're able to try hard and if you're able to be good then somehow you might deal with the problem of sin but these men, they knew that the biggest problem in the world needs the greatest miracle in the world. And so the question from this passage is who are you going to trust in? Will you trust in the Saviour? In the only one who can deal with sin. 
Or will you be like the scribes going for a sticking plaster and hoping that the problem disappears by itself? The passage makes it clear. This problem of sin is far too serious to ignore. Have you asked Jesus to heal you from the guilt of your sin? Amen. Let us stand as we come before God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for saviour we thank you for the many miracles that he performed here when he was on earth and above all father we thank you for the wonderful miracle that he completed on the cross when he satisfied your anger against our sin and when he secured our cleansing from our guilt Father, we praise you for this and we pray that you will forgive us for the many times when we have simply grown used to that being true and when we have not responded with joy and with love and with delight in the way that we should. Father, we pray that you will not only heal us from our sin and guilt, but heal us from our cold hearts. We pray that you will cause us to delight more in what our Saviour has done for us. Father, we think also this morning of our friends and of our loved ones who have not yet experienced this healing. We pray for those who still are carrying the guilt of their own sin. And so we pray, Father, that you would be gracious unto them we pray that these loved ones would just like the man's friends in this passage come to Jesus in faith and trust in him to deal with the problem of their guilt father we pray that just like the man who was made to walk in this passage that our friends and loved ones would come to know the joy of being cured by Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you will be with those of us who are trusting and who have experienced this healing. We pray that you will enable us to live as men and as women who have been changed by the power of your grace. And we pray that you will help us to be faithful witnesses to the Saviour the only one who can cure us from the problem of guilt. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.